chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. God's word. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then that uh, what, what, what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the great mind of the Apostle Paul uh, and, and the great life which he lived, both of which uh, you inspired and redeemed and, and, and through whom now you lay your will uh, bare to us in a way that we are able to understand. As Calvin says, you lisp to us in your majesty and your greatness through the voice and through the lives of men. Uh, help us, O oh God, uh, to, to come under your word and to be blessed by it and speak to us even now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in chapters uh, 6 through uh, chapter 7, verse 6, so 6, 1 through 7, 6, we have uh, considered in detail the subject of the new man in Christ, uh, as I've told you there's a little commentary I've been using by John Stott chapters 5 through 8 entitled New Men in Christ and that's precisely the subject. Perhaps I would begin it in chapter 6 or or perhaps you'd begin in chapter 5. At any rate that's where we find ourselves. The man who is and here's an argument I suppose in favor of beginning in chapter 5. The man who is in Christ and no longer in Adam. That, that's chapter 5 isn't it? Uh, and, and, and I confess to you all uh, my own great interest in this subject, the subject of conversion or the subject of the new birth. This is something which God brought about mightily in my own life, uh, my own conversion when I was 13. It's the kind of thing I want to know about. I want to know about your uh, conversion. I love to read about it in the biographies. Uh, but, but that's not why I'm preaching this. Uh, oh, and by the way, I should also say this is, this is part of what it is. This is part of what it is to... Uh, Profess your faith and to join the church, not to just say, I always tell people, you say, well, Christ died for me. And that's the first part of what we want to hear. But the se second thing we want to hear is he saved me. He made me something new. I'm, I'm not what I was. I'm something entirely new. I'm born again. And you see, even a child can say that. That very language is, is catered to a child who can say, you know, I was born by my mother. But by grace and by the spirit, I was born again, even if. You didn't have this mighty conversion experience that I had or Paul had. You see, anyone who is a Christian can say that. But it isn't just my interest or your interest in the subject that compels me to preach it. It's the fact that this is the great subject which is before us. And I also think it's, it's valuable for us to see 
this subject as following on what chapters 1 through 4 presented to us. Because chapters 1 through 4 told us about the man in sin under the wrath of God. And then he goes on to tell us in chapter 3 verse 21 to the end of chapter 4. God's method of saving the man in sin. The sinner. The man under the wrath of God. He saves him by uh, the blood of Jesus Christ. He saves, the, saves him by the cross. And anyone who has faith in Jesus is saved. But that's just Paul's description of what it is to be saved. That is no value. It is no benefit to anyone until he can say, but I have been saved. God has saved me. And so in describing God's method of saving sinners, chapters one through four, it's valuable for us to look at it in a more personal or experimental way. Describing it as we'll see here, and especially in the following section, using the first person pronoun, I. First person singular, I. And the question which is before us throughout all of this, as I keep bringing before you, is is he describing you? In, in painting the portrait of the Christian man, is he describing what your experience of grace has been? And also what your experience, Paul says here, of the law. For a man who has been saved also had to reckon with the law of God. Well, as we've Come to this point, we see in chapter 7 that Paul brings out this emphasis, our relation to the law. And what he says in particular in chapter 7, verses 4 and 6, which present the key thought of chapter 7, is that we had to be uh, not divorced to the law, our former husband, we had to die to the law in order that we could be married to another, even Jesus Christ. And having been married to him, now as the bride of Christ, we are able to bear fruit for God. In other words, we're no longer living lives full of sin and frustration and futility. Now we are uh, bearing fruit to the glory of God, the fruit of holiness. But you see, in describing that, Paul is, uh, he is arousing the suspicion that Paul is saying that the law is actually something bad, that he's denigrating the law. And so in characteristic fashion, Paul, he presents a major thought. That major thought occurs in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Not just the fact that we have died to the law, but we're now married to Christ. But in verse 6, he even goes so far as to say we're no longer serving God, uh, or serving sin, rather, in the oldness of the letter. But now we are serving God in the newness of the Spirit. And so he introduces this enormous new category, the, 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 the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the new man. He's a man who's full of the Spirit. He's a man who's bearing fruit for God. Why? Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life. But in characteristic fashion, Paul uh, sets that aside. And he wants to deal with the objections. And that's what he does for the remainder of chapter 7. And then, uh, having introduced the subject of the Holy Spirit, the person in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in the life of the new man, in chapter 8, that becomes the great subject. But it is introduced in chapter 7. Well, we come here to the first of two objections. There's an objection posed in verse 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? And then verse 13. Has that, uh, has then what is good become death to me? Two objections. And the first of these objections is this. Is the law sin? What shall we say then is the law sin? It's a fascinating question. Let us look at it in detail. What is it exactly that the apostle is asking here and why is he asking it? And so I'd want to note, first of all, the exact question that he is asking. Is the law sin? Not, does it make us sin? 
is the result of the law in our lives that we sin more and not less. Unquestionably, that is the result. Paul has established this beyond dispute in chapter 7, verse 5. And one of the primary purposes of this new section is to further establish that point. That the result of the law, law's influence in a man's life is that he sins, not that he doesn't sin. But that isn't the question. The question is not, does the law bring about sin in my life? The question is, is the law sin? Is it sin itself? As though to say, is the law something bad? Actually, Paul, you've had all of these negative statements. Do you actually mean to say the law is something bad that the believer should want nothing to do with? Thus establishing the claims of the antinomian and the suspicions of the legalist. Is it actually true to say that the law and sin are the same thing? Is the law sin? But then I would want to know why he would even ask such a question. And the reason should be obvious at that point. It is the way that Paul has been showing what is true of the man who is under the law. In other words, as I've been saying and as Paul has been saying, that the man who is under the law is actually sinning more, not less. That the result of the law coming into a situation where sin was already abounding was that it began to abound even more. Chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 5. You remember how he puts it. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law was actually producing not less sin, but more sin in our lives. And uh, that statement, verse 5 of chapter 7, is what he goes on to expound in verses 7 through 13. And just as an aside, what he says in verse 6 is what he goes on to expound in chapter 8. That is the newness of the spirit. But it seems clear, here's the problem, and here's why Paul would ask the question. And in fact, it's a question that I have even had, and maybe that you have had, which he is at, at last answering, and that is, uh, it is clear that Paul is equating being under the law and being under sin. He's saying the position is the same and the result is the same. The man who's under the law is the man who's under sin. He's under the dominion of sin. He's sinning more and more all the time. He's getting worse all the time. And there's no question about that. It's the same thing for the man. But does that mean that the law and sin are the same thing? Is the law sin? But the answer is the same as it ever is for Paul. Certainly not. What shall we say then is the law sin? Certainly not. In other words, remember the force. This is one of his favorite expressions. Banish the thought. Let the thought not even enter your mind ever again. Uh, do not even allow uh, uh, Satan ever to suggest it to you again. Uh, some translations actually have it, God forbid, but the word God does not occur here, so it isn't a good translation. Uh, I am amused to see how often Paul uses the formula or frames the issue this way. He asks this provocative question. In fact, as provocative, it seems as he possibly could. I can't imagine him saying anything more provocative than is the law sin. And, and he does so only in order that he might demolish the argument. Uh, in fact, I have a list here of how many times he does it. I'm, I'm not going to read all the passages, but you'd be amazed how long the list is. But it's important to note that the opposite is actually true. It's not just certainly not, but following certainly not on the contrary. So that's the full immediate answer. Certainly not on the contrary. 
Yes, it may seem that Paul is saying the law is sin in describing this man who's under the law and under the sin, under sin is the same man and the result being the same. But it is really the opposite. In answer to the question, Paul will say in verse 12 that the contrary is actually true. Not the law is sin, but the law is good. It's holiness. It's a, it's a transcript of God's will and God's perfection and God's being. And so Paul's real interest is twofold. One is that he is, and I've put it this way many times, he's seeking to vindicate the law and to show its true purpose and its function as he did in chapter 3, verse 31. And I might read that verse again. He said, do we, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You see, it might seem that I'm saying the law is something bad. I want to turn it aside. I want to get rid of it. It's so bad. The best thing you could ever do is never have anything to do with the law again. On the contrary, Paul says, I'm actually saying the opposite. I'm saying the law is something good. It's something positive. I'm establishing it. That's exactly what he's doing here. But then at the same time, recognizing that there is a serious problem, he wants to show us what the real problem is. He wants to blame the true culprit for the law's failure to save us. And the real culprit is not the law. Weak as it was through the flesh, he'll later say. The problem is sin. Sin which warps and distorts the law of God to its own ends. Now one last point of introduction before we look at what Paul is saying here. And that is, as I noted earlier, the personal element. The fact that he is describing this in terms of his own experience. I would not have known sin. I was alive, but then I died, and so on. He is describing it in terms of a personal experience. Now, I would note to you, and this will come out in greater clarity, I think, the reason this is debated next time, but this is actually debated. There are those who say Paul is simply assuming this position for the sake of argument. But I would not be one of those. I would be among those who say that Paul is recounting his experience and that this becomes a powerful manner uh, and method of establishing the truth of his claims. In other words, he isn't just arguing a theory. He, in preaching the gospel, he is preaching uh, the salvation that has come to him, Saul, who became Paul. He's talking about something not only that he knows by experience, but something that everyone who is a Christian knows for himself, something which we have experienced, namely, the power of sin through the law. Now, I didn't misspeak. I'll say it again. The power of sin through the law. Here is how he explains it. First, contrary to the law being sin, I'm looking at verse 7. He says, it was rather that by which he came to know sin as sin. Verse 7 Certainly not, uh, certainly not on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. He's saying, in other words, what he says in chapter 3, verse 20, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But what is he talking about here? Remember, he's describing a personal experience. And he's talking about what we could call an experimental knowledge of sin, an experiential knowledge of sin. Something that he learned not by reading the Bible, although that precipitated the experience reading the Bible did. But it's something that he came to know in his own life, in his own heart. It was something, in other words, that he discovered about himself. He came to know sin as sin. 
Not just as it was described in the Bible or forbidden, but as something which was true of himself. I am a sinner. And thus seeing sin for what it really is. Personal sin. Paul is saying it's the law that enables us to do this. It's the law which says you are the sinner. Or which enables you to say, as David said, I am the sinner. You see, on his own, a man cannot see this. He needs a Nathan or he needs the law of God to come along. And Paul is saying, I didn't really know what sin was until the law taught me. In fact, as I'll later say, and let me just say now, he really did not think he was a sinner. As to the law, blameless. Remember that. He had no idea the power of sin in his own life. But he's saying, the law taught me this. I thought of sin but lightly, certainly my own. But the law, in this experience I'm recounting, It came into my life with fresh power and it taught me another lesson. It showed me the true power of sin in my life. And and here he highlights not the Ten Commandments as a whole, but one commandment in particular. The Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. Which is really the best fitted to Paul's experience. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees tended to externalize religion. If I don't kill a man, then I'm all right. And Jesus says, no, that's not true. Even if you hate a man, you've broken the sixth commandment. If you hate your brother in your heart or if you speak a word to him in anger. And it was this command, Paul is saying, that really searches a man's heart. You shall not covet. Even if you desire to sin, you sinned. Somehow he had ignored this command all along. But, but it came to him. It awakened him. It was this, it awakened him to his own sin, I mean. The sin that dwelt in his own heart. The world and power of lust that dwells inside of man. Now he sees it. He came to know it. It is the tenth commandment, most of all, that does away with the superficial, outward notion of obedience to the law, which prevailed among the Pharisees. It is the tenth commandment more than any, which deals with us as sinners. And which reveals, as I keep saying, the world of sin within our hearts, the power of lust that takes hold of us. And that simply to desire to sin is sin. Now, if that is all he said, if verse 7 was his only answer to the argument is the law of sin, he would have said enough. Clearly, the law cannot be bad if it does that. If it tells me and deals with me as a sinner, if it tells me what sin is. If it helps me to see it in a way I never could see it before. But then he goes on in verses 8 through 11 to say, not only the knowledge of sin as sin, but the power of sin. He became aware of its power. And this became apparent in many ways. Still looking at the searching experience that he had as, uh, as the tenth commandment came to him. The first thing he says is, not only did I realize I was a sinner, but he says that sin itself was awakened by the law. At its mere suggestion, rather than being subdued, it came alive. Sin. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. It came alive, he said. He says the same thing in verse 9. But when the commandment came, sin revived. You're beginning to get the sense of how Paul became aware of his sin. It's that sin came alive with a new and a fresh power in his life. Sin that he didn't realize was there as though it was a kind of latent power in his life, unknown. But as it sprung to life with new power, suddenly he knew it and he saw it and was alarmed by it. Indeed, Paul says it had no life apart from the law. But the law is what gave it life. 
But then in verses 9 and 10, he talks about the way it killed him. Not only did it awaken and and spring to new life, but through the commandment, it killed him. This is how he puts it. Verse 9, he says, I was once alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It was through the command that sin killed me. I, who was formerly alive. Again, note the emphasis on the personal element. It did so. Sin or, uh, well, let's see, sin or the law. The, uh, sin is what killed him through the law. That's what I'm trying to say. And it was the law which gave sin fresh power. Now, there's three questions to ask here in this interesting statement. Again, I was once alive, but then sin came alive through the law. And so sin killed me. What does he mean when he says I was alive? He means his own sense of things. He doesn't mean spiritual life. He doesn't mean he was a Christian. He's very clear that a man only has true life in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. But he means my own estimation. I I thought I was all right. I thought I was alive. I even thought that I was righteous in my own eyes, my own estimation. Again, that's where Philippians 3 comes in here. Paul says, as to the law, blameless. In other words, I was unaware of any sin in my life. And in fact, I not only thought I was all right, I thought I was blameless. I thought I was a law keeper. I thought I was righteous in God's eyes and that God would justify me. I was alive. That's what he means. Not that he actually was alive. He was actually dead. The end of the experience, he'll see that clearly. But the second question is, how did sin use the law to come alive and thus kill Paul? Well, again, you remember how he puts it in verse five, and that's what he's expounding in verses seven and following. He says, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law to work through our members, producing death. That sin was using the law as its instrument. And some have even said as its lever. And he's saying the same thing here. He's talking about the way the law provokes us to sin and actually makes us sin as sinners. It not only suggests the sin to us by saying, thou shalt not. And so the sinner says, you know, I had no no intention or thought of that sin until you suggested it to me. But now I find in me the desire to do the very thing I'm forbidden to do. But it almost, as sinners, dares us to do it. Thou shalt not. Well, no, I think I am going to do that now. It awakens in us the sinful tendency and desire that's present in the flesh. It awakens our sense of rebellion. That's how sin, Paul says, actually finds opportunity through the law of God itself to produce all manner of sin. The law says, thou shalt not. And this only awakens in our flesh the very desire that the law forbids. But finally... What was this death? Paul says, and I died. Again, he's recounting an experience, a kind of death that he experienced through the law and sin through the law. Clearly, it was a kind of spiritual death, the opposite of his assessment of himself earlier. Not I am righteous and blameless, but actually I'm a sinner. A man who thought he was alive now came to see clearly through the law and the the amazing, alarming presence of sin in his life that spiritually he was actually dead when he thought he was Alive. In other words, he became aware, to use the language of the Sermon on the Mount, of his own spiritual poverty. Suddenly, instead of one who thought he was rich, he realized that he was poor. 
He realized now, as he says in Ephesians, that he was dead in trespasses and sin. Formerly, he imagined he was righteous and alive, but now he came to see things differently. Sin revived and I died. I think the way to illustrate this is uh, the way the, pre- the preaching sometimes comes to us. In fact, I had an experience of this recently and I, I just, uh, well, I just smile as I think about it because I said, what I actually said to one of my friends is, that sermon killed me. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. It was a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm sure you're surprised to hear that. And it, it devastated me. It shook me to the core and the foundation of my being. It made me reevaluate who I was. It made me examine myself. Whether I even was a Christian at all. That sermon killed me. That's what Paul is saying here. A kind of spiritual shaking. When the 10th commandment came to Paul in this new way. And sin was awakened in him. He experienced a kind of spiritual death. That commandment killed me. That's what Paul is saying here. He's describing a newfound sense of conviction. An awareness of sin in his life and of spiritual poverty. Formerly, we thought we were doing well. We thought we were alive. But then by the law, sin came alive and we saw things truly. Sin was always there. But now it came with such force that there was no way to deny its presence and power. As well as uh, its tendency to kill us. And if the law became the instrument of this experience, then clearly, Paul says, verse 10, that there could be no life through the law, no, rather, death. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. But the last thing he says is this. Not only did sin become alive and it killed him, but thirdly, he says, He became aware of something else. He became aware of its deception. Verse 11. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. This powerful force in his life was not only working his death, but it was deceiving him. How? Through the law. That's actually what Paul is saying. And so he speaks of the power of sin coming to us in its ability and its power to deceive. Its subtlety, is, it is sometimes described. The subtlety of Satan to, to tempt and to deceive. Very often Paul in describing uh, the darkness of the old ways and the old man and the old mind. He describes it as being enslaved in deceit. That's what sin is. It's deceit. It's a lie. And Satan is the father of lies. And all who are his true children not only are sinning all the time, but they're believing the lie. And what Paul is really saying here is that sin not only became alive and thus killed him by the law, but it did so through the power of deception through the law. Is that not what we see in the garden? Think of Genesis chapter 3. God gives the command. You shall eat of any uh, tree of the garden except the one. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. But you shall not eat of this one. And on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's the commandment. And the commandment having been given, what happens? Sin or the serpent sees an opportunity in the very command to deceive. That's how Satan comes to Eve. He causes her to deal with the commandment itself, to grapple with its true meaning. And he gets her all twisted up. He warps the very word of God. He uses the command to deceive her and thus bring about sin and death. 
How so? By suggesting that God didn't really mean what he said. Has God really said? You remember he says that to Eve. Is it really true that the soul that sins shall die? Is it really true to say that the man in Adam who isn't in Christ is going to spend an eternity in hell? Did God really say that? You see how that that distorts and, and warps and twists the law of God. How it suggests and invites us to sin. Oh, if you sin, God will forgive you. It really isn't so bad. God didn't really say that there will be such punishments, such dreadful punishments for the sinner. That there can be no salvation but for Jesus Christ. Or else by suggesting not only that there will be no punishment after all, uh, but that sin really isn't so bad after all. Never mind the punishment, but sin itself. You know, it isn't something bad. It's actually something good. It's something wonderful. She saw the tree, that it was good to eat. It was something desirable. Sin deceived through the commandment. You see, the command says, don't do this. And then the inward discussion begins. Why shouldn't I do it? What will happen if I do? Has God really said? And so on. And here is where the deception comes in. Where sin seizes opportunity to deceive us and thus to kill us. And here we see it was the Apostle Paul's experience. When did it happen? That's the great question. When did Paul experience the power of sin through the law? And here's the simple answer. We don't know. But it is clear, at least I believe it's clear, I'll put it in that way, that this was part of his conversion experience. It couldn't have happened while he was a Pharisee. I think I established that beyond dispute. And yet it also couldn't have happened to him when he was uh, born again. But that this was part of the process by which God brought him to be converted. Suddenly he saw the power of sin in his life, something he had never seen before. He's describing, uh, if you will, and if I can even put it this way, his experience of being under the law up to the very breaking point, up to the very end. Suddenly now he saw with clarity what it was to be under the law, which is to be under, uh, to be under sin. He saw his need, in other words, to break free. He saw his need at last of salvation. And this I know that you know, but let me say, is a common experience, not only of Paul, but of so many. Uh, I wonder if you know this. The Puritans called this compunction, compunction, a, and a period uh, of unusual conviction. And it's often a prolonged experience. Uh, a famous example of this is John Bunyan. Any of you who know his story know that he wrestled not for days and months, but years to find peace with God. He struggled to, to really believe that God was reconciled to him, a sinner. The law was dealing with him all of those long years. He was experiencing exactly what Paul is describing here. Many long years under a terrible sense of the law's condemnation. Sin came alive through the law and I died. A kind of uh, enduring, lingering spiritual death. It's awful. And yet it becomes in the providence of God so often. A mighty instrument to bring these men to Christ. To bring them to see at last their need for salvation in Jesus Christ and not in the law. For the law in dealing with them only made them miserable, but only Christ could make them happy. The law became for them and so many others a tutor to bring them to Christ. And thus, 
uh, again, to use the language of these men, uh, something of a law work is often necessary from the standpoint of the new birth. A man needs to see that he really must be born again. Why? Because he's under the law and thus he is under sin. Well, let me let me try to wrap up the argument. Obviously, then we've gotten to verse 11, but come now to verse 12. Obviously. And here's the great point being made. The law is not the problem. No, in fact, it is holy, it is just, and it is good. I, I, I feel no need to expound that to you. I think the sense is clear enough. Certainly, if you've listened at all to the, to the Leviticus sermons. But, but recognize that his experience is what confirms the answer now in verse 12. The question is, verse 7, is the law sin? The answer doesn't come until verse 12. The law is holy. The commandment is, is holy and just and good. It isn't that the law is bad. No, to the contrary. It is holy, just and good. But here, uh, go on with the argument one more verse. Here is what makes the sinfulness of sin appear most of all. It is that it takes that which is good, goodness itself, and uses it. For its own wicked ends to produce all manner of sin in us and thus kill us. Verse 13 has that has then what is good become death to me. Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Look at what he's saying here. The real problem is sin. Look at what sin does even through the law. Using that which Paul says was meant to promote, promote life to kill us. The commandment, verse 10, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. How? Through sin. Oh, how wicked, Paul is saying. How powerful, how deceitful a thing sin is. Does not the sinfulness of sin appear through what Paul is describing here? Even sinful beyond measure. That it would use the law of God itself, that which is holy, just and good, to produce all manner of sin and death in us. And how clear it becomes then that the real problem, the real cause of all the trouble is not the law. It is sin. Oh, yes, Paul says the law has a tendency to aggravate the problem of sin. It has a tendency to pinpoint, to highlight it, to Bring the knowledge of sin to awaken sin and so on. It has a tendency to cause a man to experience his true plight. That is the law work. And it is meant to do so. And so the law can never save. The law is unable to save a sinner. But don't blame the law. For it was not the law that made you sin. It was sin itself. Using the law for its own wicked ends. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Verse 11 or verse 13 once more. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. It isn't the badness of the law that stands out. It's the sinfulness of sin. That's what you're meant to see. And I would ask you in closing, is this your experience? And is this something that you have come to know? Do you know anything about what Paul is describing here? Do you know what it is to see with clarity your own sin? Has it appeared to you, the sinfulness of it? Do you understand that it's so sinful that it would even use the law of God itself to cause you to sin and by it kill you? 
Have you recognized with Paul your desperate, desperate plight and your great need of salvation, which comes not by the law, but by the grace of God? More than anything else, I ask you, have you come to see your great need of salvation in Jesus Christ and to recognize and understand that he, as offered by God, is the great answer to your problem, which is sin. As Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the answer. Even as sin is abounding, and how is it abounding? Through the law. And that is the experience of so many. In fact, I would say it's the experience of every man, just as he's brought to see his need for Christ. But the answer is not the law. The answer is righteousness through Jesus Christ received by faith. That is the only answer. Have you found it? Amen. And let us come now to the table. I think it would be good here to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have the words of institution, then we have the words of, well, of invitation and of warning. This is what Paul says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took he also took the cup uh, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for who He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Uh, I think the emphasis here needs to be uh, the, uh, the words, let a man examine himself. And the reason I say that is because that's exactly what we just considered. We saw a man who came under the power of the law and the power of sin, which, again, is the same experience under the law, under the sin, under sin, I mean. Uh, and, and he and he was examining himself or you could say that he was being examined. He was he was enabled to see his true plight, his true true need. Ultimately, uh, he is he is lost. He realizes he is spiritually dead. Let a man examine himself. Let him see his true spiritual state, his true condition. Let a man see uh, in this case. Obviously, he's describing something different here. Let him judge his relation to Christ by his relation to the supper. 
his view, his estimation of the supper. Not only that, but his estimation of his brother. You remember, this is something else that he says. He says it at the end, but he also says it in the verses which I didn't read, which are before. He's saying, you ought to remember your brother. Think not only of yourself, but of him. Examine yourself. What is your view of things? What does it mean to partake of the Lord's Supper? Is it just a common meal? Uh, Obviously, we don't view it that way anymore. And they actually, in the early church, were taking a meal together. And thus it became possible. And you know how it goes. The people who go first, they get all the the good food. And sometimes the people who go last, there's nothing left. Well, it was something like that. And Paul is saying, you have the wrong view of the Lord's Supper. Well, it isn't like that anymore. But it's just a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. But it's still possible to have the same spiritual uh, lack of, of, of discernment. And that is to say it's just a piece of bread and it's just a cup of wine and nothing more. It's just food. Well, the man who, who says that hasn't the slightest clue what God is representing here. God is saying, uh, Jesus is saying, here is my body, here is my blood. And after a spiritual sense, you are nourished by me. But not only that, you are to remember your brother. You are being knit together into a spiritual family at this common meal. That's why we eat together. That's why we drink together. Now, the question is, when you examine yourself, is that your view of things? Is that your faith? Do you believe that? Or do you believe something else? What is your view of the table? That's the question that I am asking you. But I'm leaving it with you. Let a man examine himself. It's not for me to say who is to take and who is not. It is for a man to say, only let all of you recognize, as Paul says, and as I often say, It's a dangerous thing to deal with the holy things of God. And so I say again, let a man examine himself. And with those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful indeed for the gift, uh, not only of your son, but of the ongoing communion that we have with him. Lord Jesus, we pray that by faith you might meet with us in this act of communion and that you might bind us more closely together as one body. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.